the Bible. From America's colonial period to her rise to become the richest, most powerful nation in history, the ideas and values that guide us, protect us, and hold our society together flow from the pages of this book of books. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Our founding documents affirm and build on the scriptural concepts of God-given, not state-granted rights, and of liberty under law. The biblical worldview shaped our work ethic, made education a priority, and birthed the notion of finite, limited government under divine authority. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The pilgrims, the Puritans, the founding fathers, and American leaders throughout our history have emphasized the Bible's importance to America. The first and almost the only book worthy of universal attention is the Bible. John Quincy Adams. But for the book, we cannot know right from wrong. All the things desirable to man are contained in it. Abraham Lincoln. The foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. Calvin Coolidge. The Bible Live is your opportunity to listen to the Bible. A 15 to 20 minute reading every weeknight. The entire Bible every year. Now, here's the host of The Bible Live, your Apache Indian scout on this annual excursion through the Word, Soapy Dollar. And here we are, thanking you, as always, for joining us for The Bible Live broadcast, this unique opportunity you have to listen to the entire Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, every year. We have just finished reading the book of Deuteronomy, and now we are moving back to the New Testament, picking up now with the Gospel of Mark. We have to understand and continually understand in any given passage, we're talking about that moment in time, that particular part of the whole revelation of God. For example, when we're reading Deuteronomy, we talk about the context of that moment. The people of Israel camped on the east side of the Jordan, the date 1,450 years before Christ. We talk about the series of messages that he delivers now to the people of Israel there, Moses' death, but it all ties together. For example, in our last program from Deuteronomy chapter 31, we saw Moses directs or God directs that the leader of Israel would read the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the law, to the people every seven years. That particular mandate was for Joshua, and we see later in Joshua chapter 8, Joshua follows those directions and reads the entire book of Deuteronomy to the people. That was a mandate for the rulers. Now, you're going to see as we move to the New Testament, Jesus, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, which was basically his teaching of the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the law, to the people. Jesus picking up the mantle of the kingship, following through as the Messiah, the King of Israel. So these things have a thread that link them from one passage to another. We're going to see Isaiah, the spirit of Elijah being predicted for the New Testament. We'll see that in John the Baptist tonight. First, though, let's go to our wisdom and worship segment. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How delightful and how right. The Lord is rebuilding Jerusalem and bringing the exiles back to Israel. He heals the brokenhearted, binding up their wounds. He counts the stars and calls them all by name. How great is our Lord! His power is absolute. 
His understanding is beyond comprehension. The Lord supports the humble, but he brings the wicked down into the dust. Sing out your thanks to the Lord. Sing praises to our God, accompanied by harps. He covers the heavens with clouds, provides rain for the earth, and makes the green grass grow in mountain pastures. He feeds the wild animals, and the young ravens cry to him for food. The strength of a horse does not impress him. How puny in his sight is the strength of a man. Rather, the Lord's delight is in those who honor him, those who put their hope in his unfailing love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has fortified the bars of your gates and blessed your children within you. He sends peace across your nation and satisfies you with plenty of the finest wheat. He sends his orders to the world. How swiftly his word flies. He sends the snow like white wool. He scatters frost upon the ground like ashes. He hurls the hail like stones. Who can stand against his freezing cold? Then at his command, it all melts. He sends his winds and the ice thaws. He has revealed his words to Jacob, his principles and laws to Israel. He has not done this with any other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. End of reading Psalm 147. You're listening to The Bible Live with Sophie Dollar. We are going to pick up now in the New Testament. We have been reading the Old Testament now for a number of weeks, the books of the Torah, the books of Moses. In this last set, we read Numbers and Deuteronomy. But as I said, they're a matched set. The thread moves on through, and that is one reason we understand the Bible, not only to be historically accurate and reliable for us to understand and believe what it is written there, that it is true and accurate, but also we see the supernatural element of the Bible in the sense that it ties together. There is one linking story, one linking narrative, and that is the redemptive plan of the Creator Himself, God entering into time and space, into history, revealing himself, speaking and acting consistently over the long time of progressive revelation of himself to the people of the world. We jump forward now from the time of Moses. The Messiah has been predicted. The redemptive plan has been put in motion. We see all kinds of signs of it, not only direct historical predictions and prophecies, but also we see indirect. We see pictures. We see images. We see dramatic presentations of the redemptive plan through the tabernacle, through the sacrificial system, through the priesthood, and so on. Each of these and all of these pointing forward to the ultimate redemptive plan, the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. Well, we jump right into it with the Gospel of Mark, considered to be the first of the Gospels written somewhere around 55 to 60 A.D. from Rome. The other Gospels quote all but 31 verses from Mark. Mark just jumps right by the birth of Jesus and so on and goes right into this wonderful prediction back in Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah as well that a prophet would come to be a forerunner and prepare the way for Messiah. John the Baptist tonight on The Bible Live. Mark 1, 1 through 3.19. Mark 1. Here begins the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
In the book of the prophet Isaiah, God said, Look, I am sending my messenger before you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare a pathway for the Lord's coming. Make a straight road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He lived in the wilderness and was preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had turned from their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. People from Jerusalem and from all over Judea traveled out into the wilderness to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from camel hair, and he wore a leather belt. His food was locusts and wild honey. He announced, Someone is coming soon who is far greater than I am, so much greater that I am not even worthy to be his slave. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens split open and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and I am fully pleased with you. Immediately the Holy Spirit compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. He was there for forty days being tempted by Satan. He was out among the wild animals, and angels took care of him. Later on, after John was arrested by Herod Antipas, Jesus went to Galilee to preach God's good news. At last the time has come, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Turn from your sins and believe this good news. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew fishing with a net, for they were commercial fishermen. Jesus called out to them, Come, be my disciples, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and went with him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat, mending their nets. He called them, too, and immediately they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and went with him. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum, and every Sabbath day he went into the synagogue and taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one who had real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. A man possessed by an evil spirit was in the synagogue, and he began shouting, Why are you bothering us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One, sent from God. Jesus cut him short. Be silent. Come out of the man. At that, the evil spirit screamed and threw the man into a convulsion. But then he left him. Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this, they ask excitedly. It has such authority. Even evil spirits obey his orders. The news of what he had done spread quickly throughout that entire area of Galilee. After Jesus and his disciples left the synagogue, they went over to Simon and Andrew's home, and James and John were with them. Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. He went to her bedside, and as he took her by the hand and helped her to sit up, the fever suddenly left and she got up and prepared a meal for them. That evening at sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus, and a huge crowd of people from all over Capernaum gathered outside the door to watch. So Jesus healed great numbers of sick people who had many different kinds of diseases, and he ordered many demons to come out of their victims. But because they knew who he was, he refused to allow the demons to speak. The next morning Jesus awoke long before daybreak and went out alone into the wilderness to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. They said, Everyone is asking for you. But he replied, We must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too, because that is why I came. 
So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and expelling demons from many people. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you want to, you can make me well again, he said. Moved with pity, Jesus touched him. I want to, he said. Be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared. The man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way and told him sternly, Go right over to the priest and let him examine you. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy, so everyone will have proof of your healing. But as the man went on his way, he spread the news, telling everyone what had happened to him. As a result, such crowds soon surrounded Jesus that he couldn't enter a town anywhere publicly. He had to stay out in the secluded places, and people from everywhere came to him there. This is the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Mark 2. Several days later, Jesus returned to Capernaum, and the news of his arrival spread quickly through the town. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there wasn't room for one more person, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't get to Jesus through the crowd, so they dug through the clay roof above his head. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there said to themselves, What? This is blasphemy. Who but God can forgive sins? Jesus knew what they were discussing among themselves, so he said to them, Why do you think this is blasphemy? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or get up, pick up your mat, and walk? I will prove that I, the Son of Man, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, take your mat, and go on home, because you are healed. The man jumped up, took the mat, and pushed his way through the stunned onlookers. Then they all praised God. We've never seen anything like this before, they exclaimed. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that gathered around him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collection booth. Come, be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. That night, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to be his dinner guests along with his fellow tax collectors and many other notorious sinners. There were many people of this kind among the crowds that followed Jesus. But when some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with people like that, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call sinners, not those who think they are already good enough. John's disciples and the Pharisees sometimes fasted. One day some people came to Jesus and asked, Why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Jesus replied, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while they are with the groom, but someday he will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And who would patch an old garment with unshrunk cloth? For the new patch shrinks and pulls away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger hole than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. The wine would burst the wineskin, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine needs new wineskins. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of wheat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, They shouldn't be doing that. It's against the law to work by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. 
But Jesus replied, Haven't you ever read in the Scriptures what King David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest, ate the special bread reserved for the priests alone, and then gave some to his companions. That was breaking the law too. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made to benefit people, and not people to benefit the Sabbath. And I, the Son of Man, am Master even of the Sabbath. You're listening to the Bible live with Soapy Dollar. Mark 3. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. Would he heal the man's hand on the Sabbath? If he did, they planned to condemn him. Jesus said to the man, Come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, Is it legal to do good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing harm? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily because he was deeply disturbed by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, Reach out your hand. The man reached out his hand, and it became normal again. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to discuss plans for killing Jesus. Jesus and his disciples went out to the lake, followed by a huge crowd from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from east of the Jordan River, and even from as far away as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him for themselves. Jesus instructed his disciples to bring around a boat and to have it ready in case he was crowded off the beach. There had been many healings that day. As a result, many sick people were crowding around him, trying to touch him. And whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, they would fall down in front of him, shrieking, You are the Son of God! But Jesus strictly warned them not to say who he was. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called the ones he wanted to go with him, and they came to him. Then he selected twelve of them to be his regular companions, calling them apostles. He sent them out to preach, and he gave them authority to cast out demons. These are the names of the twelve he chose. Simon, he renamed him Peter. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. End of reading, Mark 1, 1 through 3, 19. Blessed be your name When the sun's shining down on me When the world's all as it should be Blessed be your name You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Mark's gospel moves so quickly from event to event, from action to action, presenting Jesus as the servant. In general, Matthew presents Jesus the king. Mark, Jesus, the Messiah as servant. Luke, written by a Greek physician, emphasizes the manhood, the humanity of Jesus. And then John, the deity, Jesus, the Messiah as son of God, the more theological, perhaps, of the four gospels. Mark's gospel here starts quickly, moves right into the ministry of Jesus from the forerunner. As predicted from the Old Testament, John the Baptist comes and serves as a forerunner, a herald to prepare the way. He had a tremendous ministry, very successful, very large ministry. There was a great expectation of the Messiah, hopes of the people in bondage to Rome. 
and a great response to his message to prepare their hearts for the coming of God's kingdom and the coming of Messiah. God gives to John the Baptist the signal that would mark the Messiah. We learn this back, I think, in the Gospel of John, where John actually tells that God told him that when you see the Holy Spirit descend on one in the form of a dove, you'll know that that is the Messiah. So as John the Baptist is baptizing men and women who come to him, Jesus the Messiah comes. He sees the Holy Spirit descend upon him in the form of a dove, as we see tonight in chapter 1. And that was the sign that this is the Messiah. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. You bring me great joy, in whom I am greatly pleased. There was the handoff. John the Baptist then begins to call and encourage his own followers to follow after Jesus the Messiah. Some of his disciples leave him to follow after Jesus with John's permission and with John's encouragement. John is not jealous of Jesus. In fact, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. We must understand that as well. We surrender all to Jesus. Another thing I fixated on as we went through this passage is in chapter 1, verse 35, Jesus getting up early in the morning to go and pray. Even though he was very busy, very tired, he made time to go and spend this time of intimacy with the Father. We are hearing a very rich portion of Scripture from the Gospel of Mark, the earliest of the four Gospels to be written. Mark is probably written from Rome. Remember, Mark went on the first mission trip, John Mark did, with Paul and Barnabas. Mark was a friend to a great degree of Peter. It is thought that Mark probably wrote many of the perspectives and memories that came from his relationship with Peter. Remember, it's John Mark's home that Peter went to when he was freed from prison there in Acts. Remember the prayer meeting that was held that was in John Mark's home? And when Peter was released, he went to that home. Rhoda, the servant girl that (laughs) went to the door and wouldn't let him in, they were praying for his freedom. God set him free, and he went to the house, and Rhoda was so amazed and astounded that she went back and left him standing at the door. That was John Mark's home that Peter had gone to. So Mark obviously was intertwined with the person and the work of Jesus the Messiah. He saw and heard things himself that he is sharing, and also the insights and memories and perceptions of Peter, and then later on his experiences on that first mission trip with Paul. So this is a man who has been deeply involved in the life and ministry of Jesus from the beginning. So we pick up tonight with John the Baptist being that forerunner that is predicted in Isaiah, later on in Malachi, uh, the last book of the Old Testament, this forerunner who would come with the spirit of Elijah upon him. Mark jumps right into it, as I mentioned before. He goes from the time of the forerunner, John the Baptist, to Jesus calling, the time of temptation in the wilderness in one verse or two, and then jumps right into the calling of some of his disciples and into his ministry of teaching and preaching. I've already mentioned his commitment to prayer, which was a characteristic of Jesus throughout his ministry. And we see this experience of Jesus speaking with authority. A lot to do not only with style. We sometimes see that passage and we think, oh, wow, he must have been a great preacher in the sense of style, with great conviction, with great passion, and so on. That is not the deepest intention, I don't think, of the phrase. The thing that struck folks is that he spoke with the authority of Scripture. Jesus clearly spoke and related his life and his ministry to the messianic predictions, to the teaching and the preaching of the, of the law and God's plan for the law. 
we have an aberration. We have a problem sometimes in our churches and our preaching that somehow God has done away with the law. The idea that we're not under the law, but under grace. And there is a truth to that, but it doesn't mean that God has abandoned his law. The law that God has given us that we've just read in the book of Deuteronomy present to us the character of a holy and righteous God, his holy and righteous demands on us as human beings and how we should live in this world. Those laws were there to lead us, as we're told in the New Testament, to a Savior. Nobody becomes saved. No one goes to heaven because they perfectly fulfilled the law of the Old Testament, the Hebrew laws. That was not their purpose. They were there to show us our need for a Savior. And ultimately, we do fulfill the law, but not us personally. We are imputed the righteousness of Jesus the Messiah, who is the only one who perfectly fulfilled the law. He lived out the laws of Moses perfectly in his own life. Now, he lived them out correctly, not with all the added man-made additions to the law of Moses and all the perversion of the law that was going on in the time of Jesus. He kept the law perfectly. We have to understand that God's law is a revelation of his own character. It is not done away with, but God has provided through the plan of redemption a means by which we are imputed the righteousness of Jesus himself. I hope that is clear to you. God did not do away with his law. It's not like the law is no longer important. It is crucial. It is vital. It is beautiful and it's powerful. And its demands are real. What God has done is through the Messiah, he has made a way for each of us to be atoned, to be forgiven and cleansed, our sins to be covered. We fall short of the perfect law of God. And then to impute to us not only forgiveness, but to impute to us, to clothe us in the righteousness of Jesus, the Messiah himself. So we see now Jesus begins his ministry headquartered up in Capernaum in chapter 2 in the northern part, not down in Jerusalem in the religious capital of the land, but up in the northern tribes. And of course, that also fulfills a prediction, prophecies that are given that the Messiah's ministry would be headquartered up in the northern tribes of Israel. Oh, this paralyzed man that's given down to Jesus through the roof, that is an example of an indirect claim to be God. He doesn't say, I am God. He takes upon himself a prerogative and authority that only God has. And the Pharisees picked up on it. Hey, only God can forgive sins. Jesus said, so you know, I do have the power to forgive sins. He healed the man. The opening chapters now of this fast-paced gospel of Mark. Jesus serving people, responding to the needs of people in his ministry, this servant characteristic of his life. You see quickly, though, as Jesus carries out his ministry, both in his preaching and teaching and in his actions, that he is coming into conflict, not with Judaism, not with the Jewish system as it rightly presented and rightly taught in the Hebrew Scriptures, but he is coming into conflict with the aberration, the perversion of the Jewish law that had come to be prominent in that era, in that time. And so in his fasting, in his Sabbath pronouncements, in his healings, he is making strong statements about that system and about the himself as the Messiah. Soapy Dollar, Soapy reads from the New Living Translation by Tyndall Haas Publishers. The Bible Live is dedicated to helping promote spiritual revival across America, and your prayers and financial support are needed. Please mail your tax-deductible gift to The Bible Live, Post Office Box 18888. That's The Bible Live, P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. 
You may also make credit card donations at the ministry website, thebiblelive.com. Now don't forget, join us each weekday for The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Start today and in one year's time, we will read and respond together to the entire Bible. Let the most important word you hear each day be God's word.